continuing on with the uh, life of Abraham, which is uh, the life of faith, and uh, watching and seeing how it is that uh, that faith is tried and purified, and how he stumbles and how sometimes he gets back up again. So, uh, Genesis 13, it's a little long, so. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole land, saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Egypt, toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, even as we hear the reading of your word, we see so many things that are probably very familiar to us. And we ask that you in this time would remind us of the greatness of Christ, not just to pardon, but also to empower a new life. And so help us to keep Christ at the center of this, that we would not make Abram to be our example, but rather Jesus, not just our example, but our Savior. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I said I was going to go back to football, right? Well, I unfortunately watched the Patriots game last week. And I say unfortunately because it was an incredibly, excruciatingly painful experience for me to watch this game because they should have won this game. They had this game in hand and it slipped away 
through the, how poorly they played in the second half of this game. One of the things that uh, you witnessed if you read through the week was how some of the players talked about the game is done. You need to move on. You need to close the book and prepare for the next game. And that really has to do with memory. What do you choose to remember? The, uh, and what they're basically saying is, is that we choose not to remember that game. Okay? And really what happens is, is, is that great teams and great players are able to tune out what bad things have just happened. That's what makes a great pitcher in baseball great. He may have just given up a big home run, but he's able to regain his composure and focus on what he has to do now. He has a, he has a very short memory. Memory is very important. Because if you, don't have a long, if you do have a long memory, and in fact, this was displayed because the, the Bills are playing the Patriots this week, and one of the Bills players came out on ESPN this week and said, I'm tired of losing. If you have a long-term memory of the wrong things, two things can happen. If you remember your failures, you will live in despair. If you remember your successes, you will live in pride. And both of those are dangerous places to be. And so we need to have very short memories when it comes to our failures and when it comes to our successes. But we need to have a very long memory when it comes to something else, and that something is the promises of God and the work of Christ. That is where we need to have the long memory. And we're going to see to this morning what it is Abraham forgets and what it is Abraham remembers, because that is instrumental in what happens in this passage this morning. The big idea is that God uses prayer and his promises to preserve us in the midst of temptation. But first off, we have to see this reality that faith pursues peace through the Prince of Peace. Verses 1 through 9, we see that Abram is fresh off of his failure in Egypt, but he does the good thing. He sort of has this short-term memory. He doesn't dwell on what he blew, but he remembers the promises because where does he return? The land that he had been promised. And not only that, but now we see that Abram also returns to the altars that he built. And that, all, that Abram is also calling on the name of the Lord. And so he's remembering his God. And he's remembering the promises that his God ha- has made to him. He's not dwelling on the fact that he failed. He's not living in despair. But in fact, he has returned. He has arisen in repentance and believes and has returned to where he belongs. But there is a new crisis that pops up. And that crisis is quite understandable because the text declares that Abram was really wealthy. That he had accumulated, remember, when he came out of Haran, he had a lot of possessions, and now when he comes out of Egypt, he has even more. And it's not only that, but Lot, who was with him, has also accumulated numerous livestock and, and servants. And so both of them are living close together. And there's this little phrase that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land, which is a little bit of foreboding, a little kind of like, don't forget these guys, we still have to deal with them. But the fact of the matter is that all of the good land has been taken by the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They have herds too. They have livestock too. And so it's not just that Abram and Lot have whatever land they want, but now they must compete with one another for basically the scraps left behind 
by the Canaanites and the Perizzites. What do you think happens? What always happens? Conflict erupts between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. Because these are the guys who are on, so to speak, the the front end. They're dealing with the, the reality that there's only so many wells, there's only so many streams, there's only so many pasture lands for all of the livestock. And so they're fighting with each other in order to get this. Prosperity became a problem. Now, sometimes we tend to think of poverty as a problem. And it is a problem. But just as poverty can be a problem, so can prosperity. There are just as many people who have been undone by prosperity as have been undone by poverty. That's why in the Proverbs it says, Lord, I ask this, make me, don't make me poor, don't make me too rich. Because if I'm poor, I will steal and I will dishonor you. But if I am rich, I will forget you. So there is a great temptation in being rich. Okay? And yet we see, because Abram is rich, that it is not sinful to be rich in and of itself. The problem is not poverty or prosperity. The problem ultimately is how the human heart interacts with that. So this conflict arises out of this. And here's the interesting thing. Abram seeks peace. Now, based on what we talked about last week, you might think that Abram would kind of forget about all of that. But but Abram actually is the one who steps forward and seeks peace. He recognizes that something has got to change and that there are times when people must part their ways because of the reality of the circumstances. They could get their hearts right with one another and still have a problem because there is not enough food for their flocks. That's basically what Abram is recognizing here. But Abram's solution is interesting. He doesn't seek his own rights. And now, as we look at this, it's easy for us to kind of get caught in maybe some of the ambiguity here. Is Abram just being passive, which would be wrong? Or is Abram acting out of faith, which would be right? I think the way in which Moses frames this is that he's actually acting out of faith. He's not choosing his own rights. What he's doing instead is he is trusting that the God who gave him the promise will fulfill the promise and that Abram himself does not have to fight for the promise. The one who gave it is going to fulfill it. And so Abram does not have to protect himself and does not have to protect the land in this instance. He seeks peace, and as I mentioned before, precisely through uh, not seeking his own rights. And actually, that's one of the reasons why a lot of conflicts within churches go on and on and on, is because people are seeking their own way. They are seeking their own rights, as opposed to laying them down and saying, you know what, what I want isn't important. Okay? Now, we're not talking about a theological issue or something like that. We're more talking about, oh, what color is the carpet? Or the color of the chairs 
or any of the numerous things that can come up in the life of any church or any family, because this also applies to families. He allowed Abram to choose. Now, let's suspend our knowledge of of Abram's future for a moment here, okay? Wives, what if you were Sarah? What would you think about that? Would that be easy to, to watch your husband basically allow another man to determine your fate? Or would you be going, get up there, man. <laughs> You're Abram. You're the dude. You're the one God showed up to, not him. You need to decide where we're going to go. Don't let him figure this out. I can see how it would be very tempting for Sarai to not trust God in this instance, to not follow the leadership of her husband in this instance, and to really muddy the waters. And yet, amazingly, she didn't. So She'll muddy waters up later. We'll get there. Don't worry. But what we see is that Abram is acting like the Lord Jesus, as we see in Philippians chapter 2, which is what Paul calls us to do as well. From Philippians chapter 2, if I can actually find what I meant, um, each of you should not only uh, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And he then moves into the servant hymn in which Jesus laid down his glory to become a slave for the salvation of his people. Abram is able to trust God in that moment to give him the land, and to be a servant. And really, unless he has that trust that God will take care of all of the deals, he's not going to be able to lay down his rights and serve his nephew Lot. We see that Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, is the one who bore the punishment that brings us peace, and that peace that he bought is not just with us and God, but as we see in Galatians chapter 2, in actually Ephesians chapter 2, it's also this way. Because he is the one, he himself is our peace, Paul says, to the, to the Ephesians and talking about Jew and Gentile. He's the one who can resolve the issues, the conflicts that exist that way and this way. And so, The point is, is that the gospel is sufficient to restore peace among brothers, which is what these two guys were. And so the fighting can come to an end when we experience it. But it comes to an end precisely because of Christ and what he has done. Not because of our great negotiating skills. And so faith remembers God's promise and power and therefore pursues peace. Second part, as we move it 10 to 13, is that faith also kills greed through him who impoverished himself. It's kind of interesting. Okay, you know, Abram lays this down. Okay, you decide, you know, if uh, you go left, I'll go right. And if you go right, I'll go left. And note what it says Abram do, uh, Lot does, because we're going to come back to that almost identical phraseology. He looked up and saw. 
They are, on our invisible map, if we have the Dead Sea here and Jerusalem, they're up here. Okay? And Bethel and Ai, which is north of the, of the Dead Sea, and the Jordan River is here. And so they're looking out over the plains of the Jordan. Bethel is about half a mile in elevation, so it's higher than most of what is around them. So they're able to see a far distance. It's sort of like if you were in one of the peaks here. And you can look out and see what's barren and what's not. Okay? That's, that's kind of the situation that, they, that these two guys are in. And what happens is, is that the whole plain around the Jordan was well watered. Now, I can't think too much, but I'm remembering that before the famine, they had been there. And why didn't they notice that well-watered plain before? And why did they go to Egypt in the first place? Okay, that's the whole idea of the well-watered plain. It's the river that is there, and it's it's not dependent upon uh, rains like it is up in the hillside there in Bethel and I. Why did they go to Egypt in the first place? But we don't know. But he see, but Lot looks, he sees this, and he goes, that's where I'm going. He chooses by sight, not by faith. Okay? He is drawn to this fertile land, and yet there are clues in the text that Moses puts there that lets us know, sort of like, remember the old Lost in Space? Warning, Will Robinson. Warning. Okay? If there were a robot, the robot would speak, because it, it says... Like the Garden of the Lord, which sounds pretty good initially, but especially when you have the next, Egypt. Temptation. Lot is being tempted. And it's, it's almost as if he's, he wants to go back to Egypt. That's the illusion that is going on there. And there's another clue. The land where Sodom and Gomorrah were before they got destroyed... Not a good place to be. And so, what looks so good to Lot actually is really bad. And we see that his greed will result in a greater sin and may ultimately result in the loss of his faith. I mean, we're not really sure. When we leave Lot, eventually, we're, we're, we're going to see he's in a really messed up place. So we don't know what became of him, but we know what became of his, of his descendants, and they were really messed up. So Lot may have looked like a believer in the Lord, but he ends up moving away because something else has his heart. That is exactly why Paul says that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Okay, the trivial pursuit game is wrong. It's not money that is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And one of them, most likely, was Lot. And we're going to follow him as sort of a contrast to Abram in the weeks to come. Okay? Reminds me of the reality. Wall Street, the sequel is coming out. Everybody remember what Gordon Gecko said? Greed is good. Right? 
Well, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't basically Gordon Gecko who said that first. It was Ayn Rand that said that first. Ayn Rand, who, who grew up in communist Russia and saw how what she called altruism that was supposedly behind communism was destroying people, okay, because they, they lacked any ambition, they lacked any desire to do anything good for themselves. So when she came, she left Russia and she came here, she developed this philosophy of individualism that you should work for your own self-interest. And therefore, it is in your own self-interest to accumulate as, as many possessions as you possibly can. Therefore, greed is good. This morning, I was just checking a few things on the Internet, and one of the things that popped up was that uh, The Hobbit is being held up. For those of you who are movie geeks and Tolkien fans like me, the it's not sanctioned by the unions, and so the unions are saying to actors and uh, other people, don't be involved in this. And so there was this whole thread that, that followed down where you have some people saying, the unions are evil and greedy, and then you have the other group of people saying that, no, 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 their greed is okay because they're fighting against the greedy corporate people. They're all greedy. <laughs> This is all bad. doesn't matter who's greedy. <laughs> it's all bad. It's not like, oh, my greed is good, but yours is evil. All greed, says Paul, is idolatry because it's, it is seeking to find satisfaction in something besides Jesus Christ. That is ultimately what is going on. Okay? But there's this... Not only is, is there greed working in his heart, but we also see this other hint, this other warning that is there, foreboding of something, foreshadowing something bad is going to happen, that the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked and sinning greatly. These were not your ordinary sinners. This is not the little old lady down the street. This is more like the abusive drunk guy who hurts people and does other things. These are the people who sin is out of control. Not good. And it also warns of the reality that Israel would face. That more times than not, Israel was going to be more like Lot than it was Abram. Because they're going to be next to all the Canaanites in their abominable worship, and they're going to start to become just like the Canaanites. And what we find is that Lot will become more and more like Sodom and Gomorrah. But here's the reality. Jesus delivers us from our greed. That's where Paul goes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. When he's talking about generosity, he talks about the grace of God, which is in Jesus Christ, that he who was rich became poor that he might enrich others. Sounds a lot like Philippians chapter 2. He who had glory became as if he had none that he might deliver his people and make them, restore glory to them. And so that's the, that's the amazing part of the gospel is that Jesus becomes what he is not that he might make us what we are not that he might restore to us that which was lost in our sin and disobedience. 
And so Jesus sets out to set us free from our greed and to create in us hearts of enormous generosity that reflect the enormous generosity of the Father's heart and His own. And so the message of the gospel is not simply, don't be greedy. (laughs) But the message of the gospel is ultimately that God wants to set you free from being enslaved to your desires and to give you a heart that is generous to meet the needs of others, just as the Father is generous to meet the needs of others. Isn't that far more glorious than don't be a greedy idolater? God has a bigger plan for you than stop sinning. A much bigger plan for you than stop sinning. And so, as, as we find him satisfying, that is precisely when we work to put to death that misdeed of the flesh through the power of the Spirit. When we say, no, I don't want to be enslaved by my greed, but Jesus rather has set me free to be generous. That's what it looks like. To put it to death. And so we, we put to death our greed and the power of the Spirit by being satisfied in Christ and not in our stuff. Which kind of gets us to the last part here. Faith feeds on the promises of God in prayer. So Lot makes this decision. They go their own way. Okay? What happens? Abram remains in the far less fertile area of Canaan. But guess what? It's still in the land God had promised him. And guess what? Who does God visit? Abram. And God tells him to do something that, that Lot did for himself. Lift your eyes and look. There's a contrast. Abram is doing this in submission to God. And God says, all that you see, north, actually, sorry, north, south, <laughs> east, and west, I'm going to give that to you. He reaffirms the promise that he had made earlier when he was still in Ur. Not only that, but he develops the promise further when he says that Abram's seed will be like the dust of the earth. There will be so many people that will descend from him that you can't even count them. I mean, have you ever tried to count dust? You can't even count the dust in your own house. Forget the dust of the land. His descendants will be innumerable. How great is the promise of God. And then God says something else. Go. Sounds a lot like what we've read in chapter 12, verse 1. Go. Because it is. But this is a different go in the sense of go walk the length and the breadth of the land. If you're a guy, if you're, well, if you're a kid, you know, your dad is, go explore the wilderness. That's essentially what God is saying. But it goes beyond that. For a lot of times, ancient kings 
what they would do is when they came into power is that they would go throughout the length and the breadth of their land to be seen by the people and say, this belongs to me. This is my realm. And that is essentially what God is telling Abram to do, to go and, and not have a prayer walk, but uh, <laughs> well, he could do that too. But basically to say, this will be mine. This will belong to him. And Abram is continuing to build these altars as it talks about here. He goes to, to uh, Mamre and he builds an altar. And what he's doing is basically what happened when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. What did he do besides play golf? What did he do? He stuck a flag in it. Was it any old flag? It was the flag of his country. And he said, the moon belongs to us. That is what Abram is doing. This land belongs to my God. It doesn't belong to your God. And you may have it right now, but one day... He's going to give it to me. We talked a little bit about Abraham Kuyper uh, in Sunday school this morning, and one of his famous quotes is that, that Christ says about the whole universe, about all of creation, it is mine. And so we as Christians, what we're basically doing is we're walking the length and the breadth of the land and saying, you know what, it looks like it doesn't belong to Jesus now, but it does. And there's a, a day coming in which it will look like it belongs to him. He is going to renew it. And there'll be no more opposition. Jesus says, mine. All mine. And because we belong to him, we get to enjoy it. It's not just going to be this little chunk of desert in Canaan. It's going to be the whole kit and caboodle. Ours with Christ. So, as I think through this, God is reaffirming the promise precisely to strengthen Abram's resolve while he waits because it's going to be a long wait and it's going to be a difficult wait and there's going to be obstacles that we're yet to see coming up. And, and I thought about prayer because we really don't understand prayer sometimes. And what I, I, I've sort of defined prayer in my own terminology as prayer, uh, sorry, God works in us while we ask God to work for us and through us. And so this, this all connects with the, uh, the objective reality of what God has done for us, ties it in with sanctification, what God does through us, and then mission, what, uh, sorry, in us, and then mission with what God is going to do through us. Faith, uh, sorry, uh, prayer and faith are connected precisely because prayer feeds faith, because prayer, biblically done, is rooted in the promises of God. What prayer ultimately is, when, when we're praying biblically, is saying, God, keep your promises. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, isn't that a lot of what it is? You said you're coming back to establish your kingdom. The consummate it. Do it. You're saying that you'll provide everything I need. Please do it. You're saying that there is forgiveness of sins through your son. Please do it. You're saying that, that you 
that I should be delivered from temptation, I ask you to do it. And so prayer is basically asking God to keep his promises. Which means that we have to know his promises. Believe his promises. And so that's part of why prayer is a means of grace is because it brings us back to the scriptures, it brings us back to the promises, and it it feeds our faith. Sometimes we have so little faith precisely because we're not praying God's promises. Our memory is set on our failure or our success as opposed to God's promises and his, and his work. We're thinking of the wrong things. And so as a result, we, we live very difficult Christian lives. We struggle, we flail, we flounder. It's not just that we don't pray, it's just that we, we're not praying for God to keep his promises. And so our, our faith becomes more and more feeble. And so prayer is how the promises begin to shape our lives. We start to live in light of them because we start to believe them. Not only that, but that, that prayer brings grace as we set our eyes on these promises instead of on earthly joys. We've, we've turned our, our eyes away from all the stuff that we normally think of to make us happy. And we go in a different direction. And so, brothers and sisters, I say that memory can be a blessing or memory can be a curse. We are wise to forget our failures and successes quickly, lest we fall into either despair or pride. But when we remember Christ's work for us, And his great and precious promises, we see God at work in us and through us to build our faith, to kill our greed, to pursue peace, and to make that peace known. So I ask you, what's in your memory? Your success or failure? Or Christ and his promises. That is why Paul says in Colossians, since we have been raised up with Christ, set your minds on heavenly things, things above Christ and his promises. Let's pray. Father, We so often flounder because we rely upon ourselves. Whether it's uh, beating ourselves up because of our failures or being altogether too excited because, hey, we succeeded once. Our vision is so dim. Our faith is so small. And Father, it is not up to us to... uh, dig up big faith, but that we receive that as we turn to you and dwell upon what you have done and what you have promised to do. And so we ask that you would be doing that work in us. 
that your spirit would be stirring up in us a greater longing for your word. That we might see there more of what Jesus has done and what Jesus promises. That our faith would be fed and that we would be able to walk boldly throughout the breadth of this land knowing that it belongs to you. And that one day you will change the shape of it in a way in which we cannot imagine now. But that we will have the strength to wait because we remember your promises. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.